You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Barag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Psalms. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're about to see through this Psalm 83 a miraculous account of where God just rushed in and showed up and delivered his people out of the hands of their enemies who, as we're going to read, conspire against them to destroy them and certainly would have had it not been for God intervening. Bible prophecy is perhaps one of the most powerful ways in which we can prove the validity of Scripture to others. On the other hand, it's also a testimony of how God is faithful to his word. In today's message, Pastor J.D. introduces us to Psalm 83, while focusing on both its prophetic significance and its testimony of how great God truly is. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in Psalms chapter 83 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. We are in Psalm 83. Just this one psalm, I made the decision after really seeking the Lord to just take this psalm alone and not try to rush through it and get through more psalms. So, Lord willing, next week we'll pick it up in Psalm 84. But tonight we're going to study this interesting psalm. been looking forward to it, uh, I think, for what would be deemed obvious reasons. And one of those reasons is because Psalm 83 is, some believe, a prophetic psalm uh, about a future prophecy concerning Israel being wiped off the map and, as such, has yet to be fulfilled. Then on the other side of that table, there are those who believe it was already fulfilled subsequent to the rebirth of Israel back in May of 1948, May 14th to be exact, of 1948. And then subsequent to that, you have the ensuing wars, all of which were for the sole purpose of destroying Israel. Uh, wiping the name of Israel off the map so that it would be remembered no more. And so it was the year uh, 1967 in what is famously known as the Six-Day War, which was a miraculous war uh, in June of 1967. And that's when Israel miraculously, by God's (laughs) mighty hand, regained and uh, captured their eternal capital of Jerusalem. Then you fast forward to 1973, and it was the Yom Kippur War. Uh, This is all going to come into play as we get into this psalm, because what resulted in these wars was the peace agreement that today both Jordan and Egypt have with Israel. So... There are those in the other camp that believe that this psalm, uh, as a prophecy, were it a prophecy and not merely a prayer, had been 
and was already fulfilled subsequent to 1948. There's actually another thought concerning this psalm, and it's that it was written concerning the account that we have recorded in Second Chronicles 20, which we're going to talk about here towards the end of the study. So now the question is, which is it? Is it a prophecy? Is it a prayer? Uh, has it already been fulfilled? Is it yet to be fulfilled? Is this just another psalm of Asaph concerning the account in Second Chronicles 20 with King Jehoshaphat? And the answer is yes. I'm not trying to be cute, but I say that because I'm not in any way dogmatic about my interpretation of Psalm 83, but it is my belief that it has already been fulfilled. However, and please hear me out on this, I understand why others believe that it has yet to be fulfilled. And I don't think we should. I think we, in fact, do err greatly when we take just this dogmatic approach and say it has to be this or it has to be that. I do lean towards, and I'll explain why I get there and how I get there. I do lean towards this being a psalm about that which has already happened by way of history repeating itself. I think chiefly, first and foremost, it is a psalm about Second Chronicles 20, as again we're going to talk about uh, later. So I decided to, after really talking to the Lord about it and praying about it, concerning how I would teach the psalm, I decided to approach it related to its historic situation, its prophetic implication, because again, history has a way of repeating itself, and perhaps more importantly, its personal application. And I say that because one thing that's fascinating to me about Scripture is that there's this marriage of sorts between Bible history and Bible prophecy. When you understand Israel's history, you better understand the prophecies concerning Israel. So that's how I want to approach it. And whether you take the posture of this being a prophecy yet to be fulfilled in the future, or a prayer, or or a song about what has already taken place, it is really, when you peel back all the layers, a psalm about how God is always faithful. God will always defend his people for his namesake. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're about to see, through this Psalm 83, a miraculous account of where God just rushed in and showed up and delivered his people out of the hands of their enemies who, as we're going to read, conspire against them to destroy them and certainly would have had it not been for God intervening and delivering his people. So let's read through the psalm, point out a couple of things as we do. Again, it's a song. It is a psalm of Asaph, uh, as are all of the psalms that we've been uh, studying in recent weeks and yet uh, in the upcoming weeks as well. So verse 1, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult 
And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, verse 4, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Uh, Just a little side note, parenthetically, that prior to 1948, well nigh 2,000 years, it was not the name Israel. It was named after the enemies of Israel in the year 135 A.D., Philistia or Palestine. It's not because the land was ever Palestine. It was because it was named after the enemy of Israel, the Philistines, which is transliterated Palestinian as we understand it today, modern day. So this was all about the name of Israel being remembered no more. This was their conspiring against, conspiracy, if you prefer, against Israel. So, verse 5, For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. Now, from verse 6 on through verse 8, we're going to get a list by their ancient names of this ten-nation confederacy that is conspiring against Israel. We're told first the tents of Edom. This is modern-day Jordan. Now, please understand that we have no way of tracing the boundaries of these ancient nations. They certainly don't resemble what we would see as a modern-day map, but it's the area that we understand and know today as being Jordan. Mount Seir. You might want to put Mount Seir in your hip pocket. This is the border between Jordan and Israel along the Dead Sea area. So the tents of Edom, the Edomites, by the way, this was the and were the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, again, the arch enemy of Israel, and the Ishmaelites. Now this is interesting because we have a delineation here in the psalm between the Ishmaelites and as we're about to read the Hagarites. What's the difference? Well, Ishmaelites were the descendants of Ishmael, But the Hagarites were descendants of Hagar. So this collectively becomes Egypt, the Egyptians, but it's delineated and even specified as being the Ishmaelites and we're told Moab and the Hagarites. Again, this is Egypt and Jordan. Now you get into verse 7, Gibal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre. This again would be modern day, well, the area we would understand as Jordan, my birthplace. And then verse 8, Assyria also has joined with them. Now, they have helped the children of Lot, Selah, deal with them, verse 9. Now, this is the prayer of Asaph, and this is in the form of a song or a psalm, if you prefer. Deal with them as with Median, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. 
Make their nobles, verse 11, like Arab and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zebah and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Oh my God, verse 13, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So, verse 15, pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name. O Lord, let them, verse 17, be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Asaph sort of turns a corner going from the listing of these nations that are conspiring against Israel to destroy them so the name of Israel is remembered no more, to them pleading with God, concerning them, destroying them, delivering them into the hands of the Israelites. Well, I think it might be helpful to begin by pointing out a couple of observations from this psalm before we really start unpacking it. First, notice that Asaph's lists of these ten nations, they're all surrounding people groups. In other words, they all, all these nations that are listed here share a border with Israel. Again, that's going to come into play when we talk about Ezekiel 38, which we will hear in a moment. Secondly, it's notable that these bordering countries have conspired together with a very specific purpose. Again, very different than Ezekiel 38, which is a prophecy about this invasion of Israel for the sole purpose of taking a spoil taking what Israel has, not removing Israel off the map. That's the purpose of this Psalm 83 prayer, but not Ezekiel 38. So this conspiracy, I use that word carefully for, again, obvious reasons, but this conspiracy is for the sole purpose of wiping Israel off the map so that the name of Israel is remembered no more. Now, To me, and stay with me on this because I I don't want to oversimplify it, nor do I necessarily want to make it more complicated than it really is. But to me, this is why it seems to fit more with what's happened heretofore, which is why I lean towards this already being fulfilled. In other words, Both Jordan and Egypt have this peace agreement with Israel after failing to destroy Israel and wipe the name of Israel off the map. And also, moreover, it would also seem to explain why it is that they've been 
rendered inconsequential, and it's evidenced by their conspicuous absence from the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. Unique to the Ezekiel 38 prophecy is that all of the nations that are conspicuously absent from that prophecy are the very bordering nations that are listed here in Psalm 83. Now, why wouldn't, pray tell... (laughs) the nation of Syria not be mentioned in a prophecy such as Ezekiel 38 when you have this invasion taking place from the north. Certainly Syria would be and should be listed. I mean, I can explain and I'm good with Egypt and Jordan not being listed in that uh, invasion in Ezekiel 38. But Syria? I mean, they're right there. Enemies of Israel. So what happens that would explain the absence of Syria from this list of nations in Ezekiel 38? Well, we already know. It's Isaiah 17.1. It is the destruction of Damascus, Syria, becoming a ruinous heap, so much so that it's uninhabitable. That would certainly explain it. There, there is no Syria to ally together with Russia, Iran, Turkey, Sudan, Libya, and the stands, or what we refer to as Turkestan and the all the stands as one is referred to them. But there's also another very interesting reference to Saudi Arabia. We talk about this often as well. They are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 in verse 13, but not as being part of this allied invasion. They are there merely protesting, even questioning why it is that Russia, Turkey, Iran, et al. are all invading Israel for the purpose of taking a spoil. That's a very specific detail of which there are many details in the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. So I don't want to get too far off on that. We, we address this in our prophecy updates and we'll continue to in as much as these are prophecies that are certainly in play today. But for tonight, what I'm trying to establish here, and I guess even argue here, is is that none of these countries in Psalm 83 are present in the invasion of Ezekiel 38. Now, I understand that one would say, well, that's because Psalm 83 is fulfilled prior to Ezekiel 38. Okay. Again, I don't want to be dogmatic, but... I don't see Egypt, who has a peace agreement with with Israel, mentioned first and foremost in Psalm 83, nor do I see Jordan. By the way, Jordan in particular has a very good relationship with Israel. They have to. Their very survival is at stake if they don't have a good relationship with Israel. And this is by the hand of God. God has designed it and really pre, I I guess for lack of a better word, pre-planned it. This is exactly what God said would happen. So if you have Egypt and Jordan first and foremost listed in Psalm 83 and they both have a peace agreement with Israel, I do not see them attacking Israel for the purpose of wiping Israel off the map. It just doesn't fit for me. And again, I know there are well-respected Bible teachers that would beg to differ. And it's one of those things where I just say, hey, let's agree to disagree 
agreeably. <laughs> uh, one has said that agreeing to disagree agreeably is one of the highest marks of spiritual maturity, and I would agree with that. I, I think we, again, do err greatly. I just, just going to go off here just for one more moment. I think we do err greatly when we major on the minors and we enter into and engage in these arguments that are not salvation issues. And I would even dare to say that the pre-tribulation rapture is not a salvation issue. And yet, how much division is there in the body of Christ concerning the pre-tribulation doctrine? I don't call it a theory. It's a, it's a doctrine and a sound doctrine. How much attack have those who believe in the doctrine, the sound doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture come under? Within the body of Christ. I mean, you would think it was a salvation. It is not a salvation issue. There are those who do not believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Guess what? They're going to go up in the pre-tribulation rapture. <laughs> if I was God, I, I wouldn't say, hey, is that bad? It is. Pray for me. All right, let's uh, move on. It's my belief that the prophetic implications of Psalm 83 bring to the forefront the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So with these bordering countries out of the picture, and again, chief of which is Syria, then wouldn't you agree that the stage is set, the pump is primed, so to speak, for the Ezekiel 38 prophecy to be fulfilled? I mean, if we see all of these bordering, these surrounding people who have already heretofore been rendered inconsequential, wouldn't it be reasonable to conclude that the next prophecy is going to be Isaiah 17, which is the catalyst for Ezekiel 38? I mean, if you look at what's happening right now in Syria, particularly in Damascus, I mean... With Israel right now, we talked about this on Sunday, one click away. One click away. One strike away. And then all H-E double toothpicks breaks loose. We're on the cusp, I believe, of Ezekiel 38, which is brought to the forefront vis-a-vis Psalm 83. It also comports with the historic situation concerning Bible history. I I don't know if I can overstate it enough, but there is such a beautiful intersection and, again, marriage between Bible history and Bible prophecy. I think we talked about this two Sundays ago in the Prophecy Update. From the beginning, the very beginning in Genesis, (laughs) when you look back in history, Bible history, you see Bible prophecy already beginning to be fulfilled. It starts in Genesis 3.15 with the Proto-Evangelicum, as it's been called, the first prophecy in the Bible where God tells the serpent, the devil, that the seed of the woman, that's the virgin birth of the Savior, the Christ, is going to crush your... You'll bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. But he'll crush your head. The poetry of the Psalms evokes emotions of all kinds, The authors' lives were as varied as their songs, yet each point to truth we can't deny. God is still God, always in control, and forever loving His creation. 
we can rest in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father cares for us deeply and is supporting us, calming us, and providing life everlasting. We hope today's teaching on In Spirit and Truth stays with you as you continue on in your day, reminding you of truth and love at every turn. If you'd enjoy listening to more messages from Pastor J.D. Farag, you'll be able to find them on our website at inspiritandtruthradio.com. We do treasure our connection with our listeners. We'd like you to be a part of our social media community. Follow the links on our website to our Facebook or Twitter pages where you can add your thoughts to the conversations while filling your news feed with encouragement and useful information. We'd love to see you here in person at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe if you're in the area too. We hold services every Sunday at 8.30 and 10.45 a.m. or come by on Thursdays at 7 p.m. for an in-depth Bible study. Directions can be found on our website. Again, that's inspiritandtruthradio.com. If you can't join us in person, we hope you'll find a local church community soon that you can call home. Having a supportive and biblically-based church is an incredible blessing in your faith experience. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join Pastor J.D. again to continue studying the Psalms right here on In Spirit and Truth.